Hello everyone and welcome back to Inking Out Loud. For episode 49, we're soldiering on through Robert Jordan's The Wheel of Time to pick up today with book 8, The Path of Daggers. I'm your host, as always, Rob Santos, and again, as always, I'm joined by my co-host, Drew McCaffrey. How's it going, everybody? And now, I'm right away, I'm just passing off to you, Drew, so you can give us a brief overview of what's happened and where we stopped for this read. Take her away, dude. Yeah, so we really read about two-thirds of Path of Daggers for this particular episode. Uh, we had a, you know, a little bit of extra time over the Christmas break, uh, so we thought we'd take advantage of that. And we read the first 19 chapters, uh, which ends with uh, The Law, is what it's called, uh, chapter 19. But we, we start up with, you know, an interesting prologue uh, with the, um, uh, the Borderlander rulers heading south uh, for purposes, uh, obscure purposes, uh, around Rand. And it moves from there to Varen, uh, one of my favorite scenes in uh, in this book, where we see Varen kind of operating a little underhandedly, and and how she's sort of cobbled together this compulsion weave, and she's using it to manipulate the uh, captured Tower Eyes Sedai after Dumai's Wells, and then from there we have a very brief scene with Moradin and the uh, the Shara board, which is uh, a, a Oh, kind of a metaphor for the series and, and what's happening. And of course, Moradin discusses how he relates the game to what is actually happening in the world. But we move into the proper story after that. We start off in Ebu Dar with the Wonder Girls. They travel north to the Kin's farm, use the Bowl of the Winds. The Shanchan invade, and they escape uh, narrowly after Elaine tries to unweave a gateway and accidentally sets it off like a nuke. Uh, from there, we move to Perrin, where he is now in Gialdan. Uh, he's been sent by Ran to find Masima, the prophet of the dragon, and kind of rein him in. Uh, early on here, Perrin inadvertently saves Morgaze and Talonvor and Basil Gill and Seben Balwer, uh, sort of this group that escaped Amador in the last book, and then meets up with uh, Queen Aliandre, who swears fealty to him, and they decide, uh, kind of on a course of action, of Fayil and Berylaine and Aliandre, and move forward. And then we go to uh, Rand, very briefly, where he's dealing with the aftermath of the invasion of Ilion. He's kind of gathering up the remnants of Samael's ragtag army gets them under his uh, under his wing, and then there is a letter delivered by Torval from the Black Tower with sort of just a logistical update, the sort of the numbers, uh, recruitment, things like that, how, how the building of the Black Tower is going. And then Rand sends Narishma off on a special task. And then we go straight to Egwene, which is where we spend the rest of this portion, where she is... Uh, maneuvering and, and politicking with the Aes Sedai and with the nobles uh, uh, Pelivar and Luan and you know the the Andorans and then with Gareth Brine and Talmanis and we end with Egwene manipulating the hall into declaring war on Elida. Yeah, manipulating them into declaring war. Nice deft little subtle move there by Egwene out here. I did enjoy that. Um 
I'll start off by saying this is probably going to be what I think is our longest style discussion because I just have so many things that I wrote down here. But I also think this is a, an appropriate time, Drew, for you and I. I mean, maybe I should have given you some advanced warning on this to dive into this uh, this idea of the slog and how valid it is. Um, these complaints from a lot of readers, myself included, especially as a younger man, um, uh -huh. about the pacing of, the, of this book and the way it, it ex uh, well, not this book in particular, but the series at this point and how it's expanding so much in scope, but the plot seems to be slowing down in some ways. Mm -hmm. um, you want to dive into our, uh, <laughs> get this out of the way? Because I have a yeah. few things to say about this for sure. I, I do have a lot of things to say afterwards too, you know, compliments things that I have problems with, but I do want to finally talk about the slog because I've got my thoughts down and I'm ready to present them. Yeah, go for it. I, I think this so, is the perfect time. Awesome. Okay, good. Glad you agree. So I'll start off by saying when I was a teenager, and I've, I've, I've been very open about this, I was definitely one of the crowd who considered this point in the series a major slowing of pace and, as a result, super boring for long, long spans of the narrative. Um, I did say this in earlier episodes, I've since grown up, both as a person and as a reader, though <laughs> definitely more of the latter than the former, um, but I've, I've come to appreciate a lot of things about The Wheel of Time that I never had the patience for as a younger man. There are characters now, like Nynaeve and Swan, Cadswain, as well as the, a lot of the wise ones, and honestly, sorry Jared, but to a large degree, Perrin as well, I know he's going to like hearing that one, um, mm -hmm. this time around that I genuinely enjoyed reading. Where before I used to kind of just slog through, and eventually I started skipping through, and 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 after that, completely refusing to bother with, on a lot of my first rereads. Did you find this point in the series slower at all, specifically as a younger man? So, I I will say yeah, I saw it as slower, but I never felt frustrated with it um, until Crosswords of Twilight. Really. Uh. And, and that may be because when I picked the series up, everything up through Winter's Heart had already been published. So mm. Crosswords of Twilight was the first book I had to wait for and then had to, you know, push my way through and, and realize, right. well, there wasn't a whole lot that happened in that. For me, that was Night um, of Dreams, and it was But, it was but even then, even then, uh, with Path of Daggers, I've always enjoyed this book, and Winter's Heart, I always enjoyed that book. There are portions of it that I... I thought you know crawled a little bit but as a whole as a you know a concrete entity i never felt like the slog was really present here because there was enough other fun exciting things going on in this book like you know sure some of these parent chapters at the beginning of this can get a little tedious where you know he's he's running around the camp talking to the mainers and then talking to the wise ones and then talking to aliandre and like you know Stuff like that can get a little boring, but at the same time, you're going you're going straight from like the Wonder Girls using the Bowl of the Winds and Elaine inadvertently setting off a one power nuke uh, on top of like an invading Shanshan you know task force. So like, of course he's gonna pull it back into a little more of the like uh, give give the readers a breather in the next couple of chapters because he's he's not gonna start the book at such a high you know breakneck pace and then just keep that going for the whole thing so while as i said while there are stretches of like four or five chapters here where there's a lot of politicking a lot of maneuvering and conversations where not a whole lot of substance happens there's enough interspersed throughout it 
that I never got bored. Hmm. Uh, the only the only part of this series I would say is like a real slog is not till book ten. Hmm. Yeah, I suppose I like I wasn't trying to classify this book as a whole part of the slog. I just mean there are parts in here. Like the slog for me is this nebulous entity that's just it includes a whole lot of plot lines that go absolutely nowhere or if they went somewhere it wasn't somewhere impactful um yeah. like for okay so hold on, i'm opening my notes here again first off i actually have a, a small retort to what you said there um you do say and you'd make a good point that a lot of other fun things are happening as the slog is going along as a lot of these uh narrative timelines are slowing down but I honestly think it's the juxtaposition that makes the rest of it feel so slow. I think a lot of these fun <laughs> things that you say are happening are directly why I felt so exasperated with a lot of the, the, the politicking and the Rebel Eyes to Die and a whole lot of stuff going on with Savannah and, and Galena. Um, and I think a large reason for this, a large reason for this being my, my frustration with some of these slower parts, is the increasing number of tertiary characters that we're getting, especially some that don't even deserve that title. Because and embrace yourselves here, everyone. I've prepared another list. Okay, <laughs> so check this out. This is going to take me a minute or two. Ancillary, we have I said I. <laughs> yeah. Oh, this. this yeah, they're all over this too. <laughs> we have Ethaniel in the prologue, right? We have Elaine and Nayu's chapters, including Marilil, Teslin, Renaila, Ispan Shafar, Rihanna, Alice, Care, who is the the Clan Windfinder. We briefly met Chulane and Elia, the Shan Chan. I think they were Shan Chan Marat Torakin. Um. We've got Magden. Hello, Morgase. Finally joining Perrin's retinue there. Aliandra's joined there. We fly over to Galena, who's still being tortured by Therava and Savannah, as well as, and I wrote down, Rial, Somarin, Mira, Tion, Alaris, Modara, Ephalon, Kinwin, Emeris, and Norlia. Guys, I'm not even halfway through my list yet. We have... No, sorry, we got back to Rand, and it took me a while to remember who Rosanna was. She's the new High Lord of Tyr. Um, we've got Grigorin. Plus, we still have to balance Hopwell, Dashiva, Flynn, and Narishma in our heads, not to mention a brief visit from Torval. We now have Cadswain in the forefront, and whatever she's planning with Soralea. Uh, we have the entire power struggle from Egwene's point of view with Lelaine, Romanda, Shiriam, Swan, and her struggles with Gareth Bryn. We then meet uh, Arathel, Pelivar, the Mirandian uh, uh -huh. nobles. And then in chapter uh, 19... Andorin. Yeah. Andorin. Oh, I thought they were Mirandian. No, they're the four who meet with them out on the ISR Andorin. Uh, oh, yeah, they're they're the four who like re were really really pissed off at Morgaze because Morgaze right, uh, flogged Delorean and like yeah, yeah under the compulsion of, of Gabriel. That's right. Okay, right. okay, cool. And then for chapter nineteen, which is the last chapter that we ended on for today's read, I wrote down about. 50 other Aes Sedai yeah. names. <laughs> and I decided that, you know, this list was already long enough, so I took them out. My point, though, is that at this point when I was reading this series, I was about 13, maybe 14 years old. And honestly, in fact, like a lot, uh, in fact, I bet a huge portion of the first Wheel of Time readers, or I should say Wheel of Time first readers, are either teenagers or, or young adults that are just starting to dive into epic fantasy. I mean, this is a lot to take in. And, I mean, this list that I just gave you is already longer than a lot of other entire epic fantasy series that I could mention. And many, if not most, of these names that I just gave are new faces just from books 7 and 8. I mean, we have had them mentioned earlier, but we don't meet them until books 7 and 8. I mean, a couple of the sea folk we've also met briefly before, but for the rest, this is books 6, 7, and 8 for a large part, where I drew most of those names from. So can we say, really say, that referring to this 
as the slog isn't at least a little <laughs> valid. I, okay, I'm done. I, I would... It's like... Maybe it's just the use of the word slog. I don't feel like I'm wading through mud, you know, trying to read do. through this. Um, it's it's more like it, it's just a lot to remember. And, and perhaps this is just something unique to me or, or relatively unique to me where I have been quite honestly blessed with a, with a really good memory. And I never had a problem keeping track of characters in the Wheel of Time. Hmm. And so maybe for somebody who like doesn't read a name and then just remember it, this would be a lot more frustrating to get through. I don't know. Like I have, I have like a weird, but, weird ability with my memory in other ways too. Like for example, birthdays. I could tell you every goddamn birthday <laughs> I have ever heard in my life. But a lot of these Wheel of Time characters, especially considering a lot of their names are so similar, you know. I just, I don't know. <laughs> Which they're already addressing in the TV show. I don't know if you saw. What? Uh, so, yeah, uh, just before Christmas, they announced the casting for Alana and her two warders. Okay. And uh, her warders in the books are Ivan and Owain. And they renamed Owain to Maxime. Because huh. probably, I'm assuming, they don't want people to get Owain mixed up Elaine. about o Owain and Owen, Tom's nephew. Oh, and Tom's nephew. Oh, okay. I would have thought just Elaine, just the way it's pronounced. Because, you know, and this is a similar thing they did in Game of Thrones with their characters named Osha and Asha. And in the show, they renamed Asha Greyjoy Yara Greyjoy to avoid that, you know. Ah, see, I didn't know that. Interesting. Yeah. Very so, interesting. Uh, so, yeah, I, you know, there's a fair point to be made there. And, and it is it is just something particular to me that I never had problems, like, Differentiating Sierran, Sayarin, and Siane, for instance. Like, <laughs> yeah, I, that's a that's, I know, yeah. I know who each of those three distinct Aes Sedai is. Uh, I only know Siane, honestly, off the top of my head. Siane is the the white. The white, yeah. Yeah, whom Elida went to. Sayarin is the brown who kind of takes over the Black Aja hunting. And oh. uh, and then Sierin. Uh, Sierra and Vayu was the uh, gray Amerlin raised after right. uh, Tamra, who Tamara had the like, red sitter. Yeah. Right, yeah. So. Okay. Yeah. Um, so now that I've had my bitching about the slog, or at least my justification for using that term, the slog, I've gotten that out of the way now. I do have more style points to discuss. Some good, some bad. Um, unless, are you. Sorry, I want to make sure you're done getting your thoughts out of the way on that. Well. For this book in particular, uh, you know, when you talked about how the you, your kind of rebuttal, where you're like, you know, these awesome scenes are make it like more glaring when it's like the boring conversations. But yeah, it's but just the, the juxtaposition. Really. And, and, and yeah, maybe there's a little bit of truth to that. But I also find some of the conversations very enjoyable, very stimulating. So, for instance, in this section we just read, where uh, Galena buckles under, you know, to and, and swears On the to uh, Savannah. I found that scene very engaging, like the scenes with Moradin and and Shadar Haran and Grandal and Mogedi. Oh, I love those. Love yeah. those scenes. Yeah, like, and so even when there aren't these big bombastic action scenes, there's fun, good conversation in the middle of some of the more mundane conversation, and that makes it less of this like peaks and valleys thing for me. 
with yeah. like jarring changes of pace and more just like it eases the flow of the story. Yeah, it, so. it gives you different things to focus on. It zooms in, zooms out, perhaps. I mean, I, I do understand and acknowledge that I'm part of a minority here. That you know, a lot of people do have the patience. They start this this book series old enough, uh, wise I enough, well read enough. I don't know if enough. you're in a minority. I, don't I, know I if you are. There are a I, lot of yeah, people I guess who I'm complain just about these. <laughs> yeah, modest, I suppose. But it's like, you're right. There are a lot of people that complain about this. Um, but you know, a lot of people start this series at the age that we did, and I think that's that in in large part kind of contributes to it. Because as a teenager, I was you know I wanted Rand. I want more Rand. I want more Matt. I want more Rand. Like that, that's all I wanted. I didn't have the patience for this kind of thing. But since you were just talking about you know Galena and Savannah and everything happening there, I'm actually just going to get my point about Savannah out of the way here because this actually ties in nicely to what you were just saying. I think in our whole discussion about this slog, if you want to call it that. I am. I just wanted to say that this specifically, this timeline is one that I am probably hoping the most is excised completely from the Wheel of Time show. Like this narrative arc with, with, with Galena, with Savannah, with Thereva, this entire mess with the Shido and their recovery after the Battle of Demise Wells. I don't care about anyone in this plot line, nor do I even care about what they're doing. And that's the big distinction here. Like all I know is that these bitches are eventually going to lead... <laughs> to the stalling of Perrin's entire narrative for three books to come, right? Um, like, even, like, during these chapters or single scenes where, where we see the meetings, as you just said, between the Forsaken. I mean, I, I clearly don't care about them or Shida Haran, but the threat they represent is interesting, as well as all these little nuggets of gold that we get about the One Power, about the, the Age of Legends. Yep. It, these, it makes these scenes, despite the fact that I don't care or not empathetic, I should say, about any of these characters, it still makes these scenes fascinating to me. Not so with Savannah or Galena's viewpoints. <laughs> like, there's nobody here in these scenes that is a threat to our main characters. Nobody here is interesting in their own right. Not only are they all powerless in the grand scheme of things, but they're also painfully ignorant about everything. <laughs> I'm just, I'm trying and I'm trying and I'm trying for the life of me, I just can't find anything redeeming at all about these brief scenes with the Shido. Because it just it only seems to serve as a reminder that yep, Savannah's still causing trouble. Yep, Galena's still paying for her crimes. Oh yeah, the Shido, they're still wandering around and just causing headaches for everyone. No real impact to come. I'm just I'm so over it. And I, it, what really gets me is that I've read the rest of the series, and I know we've just barely started. Yeah. So. Yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, those are valid points. Those are definitely valid points to make. Uh, I don't see it quite the same way as you do, but sure, sure. I don't wholly disagree with you. That's why um, we have discussion. Bringing you know, bringing it back to the the show idea, I I really do think they could completely cut the whole Shido Fayil capture plotline and have very little impact on the main <laughs> thrust of the story. It's true. So. That just leads to another question: What do they do with Perrin for three seasons? Then <laughs> like, I don't know if they have to. Yeah, just maybe it's... expand something with the white cloaks, but I don't. I, I think a lot of things are going to be uh, uh, trimmed down. So yeah, yeah, I should. Um, I should. Hope. But um, yeah, uh, outside of the slog, what other um, style yeah. things did you have? Um. So let's see here. Uh, oh, I wanted to ask you about our opening scene and, and, and the fact that we finally got you know our our first big in-depth look at what the Borderlanders have been up to. A lot of answers here. We finally had. We've got more questions now. Um, but we get to see that despite their like suspicious kind of absence from the last few books as a whole, obviously we've had individuals, they haven't really been sitting on their asses. So I wanted to ask you, how did you feel about that opening scene with Ethaniel? I love it. You love I, it? I think this is one of the best like prologues in the whole series. Um, 
for one thing, it's it's very brief. Uh, he doesn't get totally lost in in catching us up on all of these minor happenings around the world. Uh, he focuses on, on you know two important ones and then gives us like a what two two and a half pages with Moradin. Uh, but Athenial in particular, I love the ceremony. I love the formality of the Borderlanders and this like strained familiarity where they. You know, Athenio talks about how much intermarrying there is, where she's got, like, her, her like, second daughters married to King Pater's favorite grandson and, you know, and all this stuff. And, uh, and yet, even though there's this familial connection, there's still so much distrust and there's so much tension among them until they reach the point where they're like, look, this is what we have to do. And... Uh, and then, of course, at the end of that scene, we get Tenobia, who is endlessly entertaining. Uh, I would not get along with her in person, I'm sure, but she's fun to read about because she's so ridiculous. Uh, <laughs> and and I always appreciate, you know, seeing, like, Agalmar again. You know, this is the first time we've seen Agalmar since The Great Hunt. And uh, and he was always a boss, so... Yeah, he's pretty cool. Yeah. Um, I, I like the scene as well. I was, uh, you know, as again, I've, I'll keep hammering this point. As a teenager, I didn't care for it, but really? now that I've grown enough as a, as a reader, we'll put some context here. At this point, like I said earlier, I was about thirteen, fourteen. The biggest series I'd finished at this point I, was Harry Potter. No, Harry Potter wasn't even done yet. No, at it this wasn't. Point. Yeah. <laughs> no, like Harry Potter was the biggest, most ambitious thing I'd ever read at this point. So. You know, eight books into the Wheel of Time, and we're still meeting this like this many new characters, just regardless as to their station or their rank and or what kind of influence they have in this world. I'm just I I was already over it. But at this point, of course, now having read as many books as I have, having finished the Wheel of Time, being able to appreciate it as a whole, I'm finding a lot more depth to every single one of these. Not every one of these. I still have a few that I don't like, but more more and more of these characters that I didn't care for before. Ethaniel in in the in the Borderlanders. Especially the borderlanding, uh, just royal families. Um, I do find them a little more engaging this time around. Um, yeah. So that scene, that scene was 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 enjoyable this time around, and like you know, the last few times since I had appropriate appreciation for it. Uh huh. So I have one style note that I wanted to to bring up, and I think this is a good time to transition into that, and that is on the the subject of like this huge cast of characters, the expansive world building, and the incessant uh, progression of our secondary and tertiary cast. And that is how, you know, you, like you just brought up, we're eight books in, and, and the cast is still growing. And it's like, okay, yeah, like, it's, it's a lot. It's a lot to handle, it's a lot to keep in your head. But, uh, it's done in such a way and over such a long span that Robert Jordan handles it well. Like, it's it's fairly easy, uh, you know, if you're at least used to this sort of thing or you're ready for this sort of thing, it's a fairly easy learning curve where he doesn't throw you into the eye of the world where you need to know all of these eyes to die in book one or book two or book three. You don't meet them and they don't become players until book eight you know, something like that. So it's the gradual expansion of the world building that I appreciate a lot. And I wanted to draw a contrast to uh, my least favorite book of 2019, and that was Ruin of Kings, 
which does it, which has aspirations <laughs> to this same type of expansive world building and crazy big cast of characters but it just throws you directly into the deep end of all of these names and you just don't care about any of them because you don't know any of them and like <laughs> and you're like you're still trying to get your handle with the main characters with the protagonists and you're like like if i don't really care about my main character yet why am I going to care about these other 20 nobles or like slave owners or ship captains or whatever? Like, and, and so it's the way Robert Jordan built his kind of, um, forward momentum with the world building and the characters in this, that makes it more accessible, even though ultimately it is extremely daunting like, you know, when, when you see people talk about online, like, Oh, I'm starting the wheel of time. I've heard it's, it's, really hard to get into or i've heard it's huge i'm i'm a little intimidated and somebody's like oh yeah there are 2782 named characters and you're just like oh my gosh that's so ridiculous i'm never going to be able to handle that but it's like no you don't have to deal with 2782 named characters from page one you deal with like five <laughs> you know yeah book two adds like 25 book yeah three adds like 50 and it goes up exponentially by the time you get to book eight it's adding like 250 names it's like holy yeah. crap but so here. you 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 can get used to how robert jordan works and how he introduces characters and and you can sort of cheat a little bit where you he's he's established these conventions and predictability in personalities where with things like the ajas you're meeting like some greens you can expect them to have a certain type of personality. And he doesn't need to spend a whole lot of time describing what Morel is like because you already know what greens are like before that. Or you you don't need to spend five pages talking about Ramonda's personality as a healer because you know what yellows are. You can spend the time on what's important about M Ramonda, which is like her ambition, you know? And it, it, so it's just... I think this is a really good example of how to properly build a huge series. You do it gradually, you do it smoothly, and you give your readers a chance to get dug in before you throw all of this ridiculousness at them. Because otherwise, it's just going to turn them off. Yeah. Yeah, and that, that uh, as, I've, as I've said repeatedly, was definitely a case when I was, uh, when I was a younger guy. Um, I, I love how we're almost half an hour into the episode. We're still on our style discussion. I'm not even done <laughs> my style discussion here. I have, but all of my points from here on out are just very brief. Okay. Um, uh, I wanted to say we have some more of the creep factor right out of the gate, you know, uh, making sure that we understand the darker tone that this book is going to take, which, you know, it's not a huge surprise seeing the last couple novels and how they've gone. But mm -hmm. that image there that I have of the Golam watching the party leave the city of Ebudar spotted as just this little figure atop the spire clearly gazing down at them yep Ugh, so creepy and then we have another scene of course really briefly very briefly with the golem finding a nice warm meal right yep. After, we get moradin yeah yeah warden watching the party from afar he's clearly on to what they're doing and what they're about to do and he's furious and trying to stop them um i thought that was pretty cool um, but I also wanted to give a, another nod to Jordan and just the way that he is so blasé at this point with these incredible similes that he keeps adding. You know, after the bowl of the winds is finally used, Nynaeve has this epic metaphor where she says, I feel like a kitchen sieve that's just had the whole mill poured through it. Yeah. That was, that's, that's one right there that like, like, obviously not spoiling anything, but David from the Reckoners would just be like, that's a really good one. 
right? Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, sorry, are you completely done your style? Because I have a couple more, but I don't want to just... I am done on style things. Cool. Okay. More dramatic irony. We have more gays. Like I said, hello. You know, finally jo- joining Perrin's retinue. Um, and let's see here. Um, oh, and, and to balance that huge rant that I went on earlier, I'll end my style discussion with another compliment. And I want to say I still love, love, love this Aiel humor. I love it oh, so yeah. much. <laughs> Gall. Gall, my man. Sulin, our Chiad and Bane about. I saw them hunting yesterday, and I figured I might show them how to draw a bow before one of them shoots herself in the foot. Yeah. <laughs> Dan Zinger. Then we get Sulin with the smirk on in, in return. She's just like, I'm surprised to see you come back today. They went out to say, uh, they went out to set snares for rabbits. You know, smattering of applause, appreciation. Oh, damn, Sulin, that was nicely returned. But my man Gaul, he just shrugs it off with an eye roll. He's thinking, in that case, I better go cut them loose. Yeah, yeah. Ah, boom! Fatality. I loved it. It was just, <laughs> ah, it was so good. It's so good. And that wraps up my style discussion. So. Okay. Character. Let's start with Elaine. Elaine? Oh, the one that I actually didn't write anything down for. Really? Yeah, I didn't write down anything for Elaine in this part. Because there are two, I think, important character moments for her in this. Uh, and one of them is sort of an ancillary, nice little tidbit dropped in. Uh, one of them is her research into the Turong Rail, into the cash they have collected from Ebudar. And she starts getting, you know, some descriptions, you know, she finds three Angreal in there, and, and she starts going through and giving, like, impressions about some of them, uh, including the, uh, uh, I'll, I'll leave that for next episode, actually. Um, yeah? Okay. The Red Rod to Angreal. Oh, um, uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but, you know, she finds the, the Paralysis Net set, you know, the, the gaudy jewelry, and and she finds, like, the Talisman of Growing and the Robert Jordan cameo, like, ebook library Turon Rail and things like that. Uh, and, and she has this conversation while she's researching them with uh, Van Dean, I think it was. And she warns Elaine, she's like, you know, this isn't very smart, what you're doing. You could, you could burn yourself out or kill yourself or kill us. And, and Elaine's like, I'm being careful. I know what I'm doing. And she's like, Martine Janata knew what she was doing too. And we found her burned out on the floor of her bedroom and she had no idea what happened. She didn't remember anything from the past week and didn't know what Tarangrao she was studying and like all of this stuff. And so this is, I think, the first the first sign of the uh, overweening recklessness Elaine is going to be demonstrating in the next couple of books where she has an impetuous tendency to just do something because she's supremely confident in herself whether that confidence is justified or not we're going to see this happen in Winter's Heart we're going to see it happen in Knife of Dreams we're going to see it happen in uh, Towers of Midnight Like there's, there's all this stuff that she does um that she basically gets lucky in and and that she doesn't think through and this is the first time that we see one of these like really kind of higher stakes instances of it she's not as 
uh, ridiculous in the earlier books as she's going to get from here till the end of the series. Uh, I have one more thing to talk about with Elaine. Oh, actually, sorry, I totally forgot something I thought of while you were talking about that. I just need you to back up really quick about two minutes there. Okay. What was this you said about a Robert Jordan cameo with the ebook Turang Royale that's got all these books in it? That's a Robert Jordan cameo? Yes. Um, Holy crap, I had no idea. <laughs> oh, maybe I should have saved that for the lore segment at the end. Although our, our lore segment's going to get a little off the rails as it is, so... What, in this uh, episode specifically, or you mean just going forward? In this episode specifically. Whoa, nice. Okay, okay. <laughs> um, I, should I just jump on to... Oh, sorry, you said you had one more about Elaine. Yeah, so, Go ahead, so I think I found the, um, the description of it uh, where they're going through... Blah, 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 blah. Uh, odd piece of jewelry. Oh, my gosh, where is it? So there's the seated woman... With her, like, the long hair. Um, oh my gosh, where's the description of it? I remember seeing this Turang Royale and thinking, oh my god, they had, like, memory back then. They had ebooks back then or, 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 or storage with text. I was like, holy crap, that's cool. No part of me stopped to actually look at the description of the figure. Yeah, so it's described here and then it's described again in Knife of Dreams when Avienda, like, reads it or whatever. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's it's like a bearded man smiling, yeah. holding a book. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> that's so cool. Yeah, and so and Robert Jordan did say that that was like his self-insert in the book. Cool, cool. Nice and subtle, too. Very modest about it. I like that. Yeah. Um, are we uh, wrapped on Elaine? Uh, no, okay, so... Uh, oh, sorry, yeah, that's right. You were just confirming. The, yeah, sorry, the other thing is... Uh, the unweaving and the gateways. Mm, yeah. Uh, so this is perhaps you know another tie into her in, impetuosity, if you will. Uh, but how how her luck is really running strong here, and even though she's super not prepared to do what she tries to do, and it could have ended much much worse, it ended up being like kind of a a, a big deal. She ends up, you know, throwing a huge wrench in the Shanshin invasion plans with this. And on top of that, she makes them extremely paranoid. Mm. And and they might have caused a lot more trouble in the next couple of books were they more confident in, you know, in their uh, ability to move forward with things, you know, like... If they thought, uh, if they thought they could just attack the Aes Sedai and not have any issue with it, but instead they're all like really paranoid about, yeah, uh, this weapon that they have. Yeah, this this like super weapon, and they're like, oh boy, you know, they're way more dangerous than we thought, mm -hmm. and and all of that. Um, and so, Elaine. I do think learns a little bit of a lesson from that gateway where uh, she, she has the same kind of like learning um, hunger in a lot of ways as Egwene does. Yeah. Uh, but she's, I think that's tempered a little bit by, you know, she's like, okay, just because Avienda can do it and just because I can learn how to do it doesn't mean I'm necessarily going to be good at it. 
And yes. from now on, when it comes to things like that, she tends to stick more toward the things she already knows she has a talent for instead of trying to go do crazy new stuff. Yeah. So, but, but that's the last thing I wanted to talk about with Elaine. Other than that, like, yeah, some of the, the bickering that goes on during the ride with, like, the Seafolk and the Kin. Uh-huh. <laughs> it's just like, ugh. Oh, the Kin. I forgot to list. Oh, I mean, I yeah. did list some of the Kin, but yeah. Um, so, I'll, uh, are you fine with moving on to Nynaeve? Nynaeve? Why did I say it like that? Nynaeve. Yeah. Uh, and honestly, I don't have much to say about Nynaeve here. I... I've only got a couple of brief points. Okay. Um, I, I did write down, aww, when the Shan-Chan strike on Ebudar, it's Nynaeve that wants to go back for Matt. She uh-huh. is terrified for him. And despite how much she complains about him, or maybe because of how much she complains about him, it's all the more endearing in this moment. You can you can genuinely see that Nynaeve is still the wisdom at heart. She still wants to protect those Emmons fielders. And I'd, I'd, I'd like to imagine this hypothetical scenario, bear with me here, where it's it's fun to think about, where Nynaeve actually does end up going back for Matt, and she shows up where Matt is locked away in a dingy cell, and she gets to blast the door open and announce <laughs> that his ass better get stepping because she's not taking any nonsense and it's time to go. <laughs> I would love to see that. It's just, just, just uh, uh, even like a like a quick animation or something like that. It's just oh, so entertaining to do. An old role reversal. Or to read. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, but on that right there is pretty much everything I had to say about Nynaeve. Okay. Yeah. Uh, let's move, move on to, to our big hitters. Let's move to Perrin because we cool. do have a, a reasonable chunk of Perrin in this book. We do. Yeah. Um, which is funny because my. My memory of this book was always that he only had a couple of chapters, but he actually has like seven or eight chapters in this book, and and there are not that many chapters in the book total. Like it's a this is the shortest Wheel of Time book. I, I should have brought that up in that opening segment, really? but this is this is the shortest Wheel of Time book. Uh, there are only thirty one chapters in it. Uh, it's hmm. like a little little under six hundred and seventy five pages in my you know mass market paperback. Uh, ah. Yeah, it's. It's significantly short. I mean, like, this is, this is like, half, I think, or, or like, a little more than half the length of uh, Oathbringer, for instance. Wow. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> That's crazy to consider. Holy crap. Yeah, but so Perrin getting, like, six or seven or eight chapters in this is actually a significant chunk of the book. And, and maybe this is you know, the reason I have a, a bit of a different perspective on this is because he doesn't have much of a character arc in this one. Uh, it's it's mostly just groundwork being laid yeah. for his eventual, like, rise to leadership uh, where we're starting to see him acquiring these different factions now where he's got, you know, he left Kyrian with uh, a small contingent of Aiel, you know, maidens and wise ones, and then the uh, Bear Lane and her winged guards. And now, yep. early on here, we see him acquire more gays in her little group with, yep. uh, with Baller. Unbeknownst to him. <laughs> Colin Bohr, yeah. And then we see him acquire Aleandre and her Yeah, that's, he, that's why I, I was going to stop you right there and say, what do you mean, like, little ones? Like, what are subtle ones? The beginnings. This is huge. He's got, he literally has Berylaine, which is, you know, the first of Mayen. But now he has the Queen of Gildan as his liege lady. Uh-huh. I mean, sorry, no, sorry, yeah. as his vassal? What the vassal, hell is the yeah. word I'm looking yeah, for? He's, yeah, okay. he's her liege lord. He's her liege lord, yeah. yeah. Um, I just, I mean, that that's huge. That is a big, big moment for the for the rise in power of the man who is Perrin Ibarra. 
Yeah, but so where I was talking about it more is like in Perrin's internal journey, he's not really doing much yet. Oh, uh, yeah, he's true. still very much resisting, and he, and in this book especially, he's not even really the one making the decisions. It's not until Fael gets captured that he starts being the driving force behind it. Because we yeah. see in this, you know, when Aleandre swears, and then she goes off and talks with Fael and Berlain, they're the ones who are plotting and making the plan here. You know, yes. and Perrin's like, oh, I'm just going to go talk to the wise ones and try and smooth over the, the ruffled feathers. And the wise ones tell him in no uncertain terms to, you know, get off their back. Uh, <laughs> so, so with Perrin here, it's like there are bigger pieces moving around him in these chapters. And he's not so much the active, you know, he doesn't have much agency here. It's the people around him who have agency. And that's yeah. a big change for Perrin because the previous scenes like like basically everything from Lord of Chaos earlier um, whenever we get a Perrin point of view he's got agency and now suddenly in Crown of Swords and Path of Daggers he's losing some agency and it's so. it's like Rand in Crown of Swords is telling Perrin what to do and Perrin's doing what Rand wants and then here wow. Perrin's not making not making the uh, the decisions it's Fael and Berylaine who are making the decisions about how they're going to go about this. And and this is, I think, uh, a clever thing that Robert Jordan did because Perrin's eventual character arc is all about him having ultimate agency, being the leader, and, and being a unifier. And he starting him off on this new character arc, because really Perrin has... Uh, a, a brand new character arc after Doom Eyes Wells. And, and it is this rise to power, rise to glory, rise to leadership kind of thing. And by starting him off, like, rewinding the clock, setting him back at ground zero where he's got no agency, we can see him gradually rise through that arc to where he's the one making all the choices and being a true leader. Yeah. Um, as far as Perrin goes, I will say, Broski's internal dialogue, though, was getting pretty sassy. <laughs> you know, he was observing some horses at one point. It might have mm -hmm. been in Morghese's retinue. I don't don't quote me on that part though. But he says to himself, and you know, in his eternal dialogue, a finer collection of buckneys, bohawks, spavins, and swaybacks Perrin could not recall. I just wrote <laughs> down, damn Perrin, he's just roasted those horses. Yeah. And as an amusing side note, um, when I tried actually writing that exact quote down. My phone auto-corrected literally every single one of those into something else. <laughs> which should tell you something about the eccentricity of Mr. Jordan's writing style, eh? Yeah, it, it is actually kind of funny uh, to, to bring this back to style talk. Uh, while I tend to not like think too much of a lot of words that Robert Jordan uses because my like foundational... like When I got into adult books which was fairly early on, which was like third, fourth grade, I, I read a lot of stuff like uh, Robert Louis Stevenson and Alexander Dumas, and they used language like this. Mm. And so reading it in Robert Jordan's books, it never stood out to me. But then <laughs> okay. I see people talking, they're like, what are these words? And I'm like, oh yeah, of course, it's this and this. And, and, and they're like, no, those are not normal words. Yeah, you know? the spit dog on on, uh, on the Dragon Reborn, I remember one. Be like, oh, I yeah, yeah, when you brought that up. That one. I was like, what the hell is this thing? You had, yeah. to, you had to tell me what that was. Yeah, because yeah, like, you know, when I was younger, 
I, I read stuff like The Black Arrow by Robert Louis Stevenson, and that's like a, you know, War of the Roses era England, which this is more or less the same, like, technology and, like, cultural level as in The Wheel of Time. So a lot of that yeah. vernacular is the same. And, yeah. uh... <laughs> Uh, but yeah, that that is really funny that your phone was yeah. trying to like autocorrect everything. My phone autocorrected every word of every one of those. <laughs> it took me like, like like a minute and a half to get those like eight words down. It was uh, it was the most frustrating oh. thing. I was like, no, no, no. Yeah. Anyway, uh, um, but so back to back to Perrin, and and, right? and I just wanted to end with my last point about him is that well, I just went on this whole rant about how he had no agency. He's not the one making the decisions. His sequence of chapters, in this part of the book at least, ends with him making a decision and giving a command to hang the dragon swarm. Yes. And this is the yes. first time now where Perrin's like, I'm making this choice. I'm giving this order. Yeah. And I like what, how he retorted yeah. to that one guy. If I could tie that to you, you'd hang from the nearest tree. I was yeah, like, yeah. Oh, oh, God. Yeah. <laughs> Hardcore Perrin A. Barra right there, ladies and gentlemen. Right. Um, uh, my last point my last point about Perrin is how Jordan continues to play. Again, this is a style point. I have so many style points. Wait till we get to Rand. I have a couple more there, too. Um, Only the way two that, chapters? <laughs> yeah, yeah. The way that Jordan continues to play with dramatic irony on the, on the part of Morgays in this sequence, particularly uh -huh. where um, she missed pouring the cup, and then she cursed to herself yeah. in that, so that only Perrin could hear and I get. I wrote down. I guess we can see exactly where Elaine gets it. Right. Yeah. <laughs> right? I thought that was a very. That was very. No. Oh, like. 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 Cushy moment because it's like. Yeah. Mother. Daughter. They are. They are very. Very similar. I. I did enjoy that. That little bit of. Uh, irony nice. that. I, I like that parallel that you drew there. I like that. Yeah. <laughs> um. Now that wraps up my points about Perrin. Um. I still have Rand and Egwene and Cadswain, to get out of the way. Who should we move on to next? Well, let's do Cadswain first. Okay. Because she's okay. only in, like, one chapter, so... Right, right, yeah. And me being the big Catswain fanboy, I still have almost that many words myself just to say about her. Okay. Um. So, most... Well, like, I should start off by saying most everything I have to say about Catswain at this point centers around this conversation and this new scheme that she has with Soralia. Because um, as a teenager, this scene marked, it for, honestly, for me, personally, a huge turning point in the series because of how much it gave me to reconsider. Because... Up until this point, as an ignorant, obnoxious, hormone-ridden teenager, I was totally on board with Rand's whole fatalistic attitude of, oh, I must become hard. Hard as rock. No. Hard as steel. No. Hard as Quain DR. You know, like, every character that challenged him on his fading humanity just really, really, really frustrated me as, as much as it frustrated Rand. But Cad Swain, and this is why I love this character, she was the first character to explain it in a specific way, making me actually reconsider what I was hoping for. Um, I mean, nobody can deny that Dark Rand is an epic, badass son of a bitch. But I can't really argue... Oh, sorry, and I say that can't really be rivaled in anywhere else in epic fantasy, at least on the level of Randall Thor. But when she said to Soralia, Catswain, if he goes to Tarmungaden as he is, even his victory may be as dark as his defeat. This is another one of those lines, Drew, where I, I remember exactly where I was when I read it. I was on I was in the top bunk of the bunk bed my brother and I used to share. Like, I'm telling you, I had a blue rocket blanket, the white tile floor, I could smell the cinnamon spice in the air like that. I remember this moment when, when Cad Swain blew my mind. I remember it. Um, 
But it wasn't until this re this read through that I realized the importance of this coalition she has with Sorlia. Like these are apparently from from the way Jordan describes them, the two most formidable women in this entire series, to use their word. Uh huh. Um, joining together in a common struggle against Rand. But for the first time, it felt like it might actually be for his own good to teach the Dragon Reborn laughter and tears. What do you think, dude? Catswing. Yeah, so uh, this scene is very interesting, and it does give you a different perspective on Catswing because everything she does, or most of the things she does in... Uh, in A Crown of Swords are pretty straightforward, like, Aes Sedai things. You know, they she acts towards Rand the way every other Aes Sedai acts towards Rand, where she's like, you're important, so you need to stay alive, but you're going to do things my way, and I'm going to be mysterious about it, and I'm going to just be like, well, of course I'm right, because I'm an Aes Sedai. And then yeah. it's in this scene where we see her kind of distance herself from the usual... Uh, methods of the White Tower, and and her willingness to work as equals with Soralia to kind of come together on equal footing, which is not something we've seen from all these other Aes Sedai interacting with the Wise Ones, where yeah. there's there's a huge power imbalance, one way or the other. Either these Aes Sedai are beaten down and are being treated like servants, or the Aes Sedai are haughty and see them as wilders. You know. And so it's Cadswain recognizing a peer in Soralia and being willing to uh, step outside of her comfort zone to achieve a goal. Yeah. So I appreciated and that. Especially for somebody with the stature of Cadswain, somebody with the reputation of Cadswain, being willing to make that overture and to approach Sorlia, not approach Sorlia, because I guess suppose Sorlia approached her, but to accept her as an equal, united in a common struggle, that is a huge, huge, huge deal for, for you know, the, both of these women. Um, uh, and my last point about Cadswain, uh, tying back really, really briefly, actually, to Rand, if you'll pay attention, because I, I just wrapped up my, my point previously, to treat, to, to treat, listen to me, to teach the Dragon Reborn laughter and tears. If you'll notice, the very, very next scene we get has Rand, and he said, and he thinks to himself about how everybody's probably, you know, thinking it might be him behind the drastic change in the weather now, and he's laughing to himself bitterly. I just thought that yep. was a very, very deft narrative move there on Jordan's part. It was pretty cool. Yes, uh, I, I like and and how he, you know, there's this like weirdly unsettling scene where like the nobles come into the tent and he's laughing, and they're all like, uh, <laughs> oh, you yeah. know, and and of course he, he's not laughing because he's like happy. He's laughing because he's going crazy and Luz Theron has returned. Yeah. And uh, yeah. There's so, good good juxtaposition of like laughter and tears can mean very different things. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So um, so are we done with Catswain? Yes. Should we move on to Egwene or Rand? Well, let, let's stick with Rand since we're already kind of talking yeah, about okay, him cool. here. Yeah. Uh, okay. Sweet. There, you know, like I said, there are only a couple of chapters with Rand in this, but they're like they're, it's getting hard to read. You know, like he's. He's so unstable mentally now. I where, love reading it though. Oh yeah, it's it's like it's hard to read, but it, but it's like really compelling, you know. Yeah. Um. 
but but it it's kind of combined now with the the dreary setting you know where the snow is starting to come down and like it's the dirty encampment and the dirty men hiding out in like the bushes and and it's a very gritty kind of scene that we're navigating while we're in this really gritty mental landscape of Rand's and it makes for a, a pretty grim couple of chapters here and then of course Rand's antagonism surfaces when Torval shows up and because you know, oh, yeah. he's I mean that guy's a jerk and Rand doesn't like him to begin <laughs> with and then he's got all this news from the Black Tower and he's being really contentious about it and and uh, being contentious about the the Saladar Aes Sedai and their army and Rand's like oh no they're going to Camelin don't worry about them and he's like oh well I mean it just looks like they're going to the Black Tower he's like no if any of you touch that army I will personally kill you and like and and it's and you know going back to your points about dramatic irony this entire scene is dramatic irony because Rand is thinking like I know what's going on here Torval doesn't but really Rand doesn't know because they're not going to Camelin either Mm, yeah. Like they're going to Tarvalon. <laughs> yeah. And so yeah. It, it, it just yeah. goes to show how kind of fractured man, uh, Rand's mental state has become. And it's it's troubling. I mean, it's really troubling. It's interesting. I actually hadn't considered it that way before. Um, I wrote down here, I said, holy crap, Rand's scene starts so dark and ominously again. Um, tacking on to your point there, I said Jordan has hit his stride with these Rand intros. This rain matches perfectly as he's waiting for the return of the men that Samael placed, you know, elsewhere in Ilion. Um, and then I went on to write after that, after I had a, a brief realization, I wrote, um, how am I just now realizing that Jordan has managed to make so many of these dark and ominous scenes with Rand and, you know, bringing us back into his mind, mindset without using storms or raining anywhere. This entire world has been in a drought for several books now. When I realized that, I was almost intimidated by that implication. It's like, it, it's like getting through an entire poem and then realizing the poet never used the letter E. It's like rain and thunder and lightning, all these atmospheric add-ons, this kind of stormy weather in general, it's a great source of setting. A scene, but or, or just like you know, instill the tension, you know. But Jordan has literally held this world still for months, years in his part because he's writing through it, and he still managed to give us all of these incredibly dark and ominous scenes without needing to utilize this whole rain, dark clouds, thunder, lightning kind of setting that we we really haven't seen since the Dragon Reborn, I think, when when uh, they were in, in Tyr and they uh -huh. were hunting down Bilal. Or was it... No, it was Samael. They were still in Ilion at that point when it was raining and the Dark Hounds attacked. Well, yeah, and then and then there's a scene with Matt in, in Tyr when he's uh, looking for Komar. And right, Tom right. gets sick. Yeah. I mean, we got some rain at the end of the Shadow Rising, but that's not that's not even remotely the same no, thing. It's yeah, Rand, no, yeah. It's Rand causing a miracle to get the attention of the, the right. rampaging Aiel at Al-Kirdal. Right. Yeah. So I just, I, I, I realized that when I was writing that down, I went, wow, I have to mention that. I probably should have mentioned that in my style discussion too. But we already had so much to talk about style-wise today that I just, I just, I, I had to add it to Rain's character. Yep. No. Yeah. Um, also, he's made his biggest announcement yet. Though he hasn't proclaimed it yet, he tells the Ashaman that he's going to cleanse the taint on Sidene. Yes, he does. Yeah. And he's, as an aside... Yeah. 
their reactions were kind of chilling, I think, from, you know, Dashiva's nonchalance to, I think it was Hopwell, his eyes just shining with sudden hope. And to yep. think that he already oh, has that much faith in Rand, and not, not as a person, but as a figure, chilling. And I'm, because of that, badass. Sorry, go ahead. Uh, no, so I just wanted to tack on briefly uh, this group of Ashaman with Rand, right? We have Dashiva. Yeah. And then, mm-hmm. you know, we've got Eben Hopwell and Jahar Norishma and Fedwin yep. Moore and Jonan oh, Adley. Fedwin Moore, I forgot about Adley, I forgot. Where's Damer Flynn at this point? Is he still in Kyrian? I believe he's still in Kyrian. Oh, okay. Uh, oh, I mentioned him He's in doing his thing with Samitsu, right? I don't oh, yeah, that's right. She's offering to do anything, even bury his children, as long as she yeah, shows yeah. him, or he shows her what she did to heal Rand. Yeah. Damn it. Um... <laughs> Yeah, no, in fact, he's definitely in Kyrian because yeah, it is okay. right about now that he heals Urgain and the, uh, the right. other two tower sisters of uh, being, yeah, being <clears throat> severed. Um, uh, but yeah, yeah, there's there's definitely some big stuff here. And we also get numbers from the Black Tower. We get, uh, I believe it was 29, uh, 29 Ashaman, 122... Uh, dedicated and oh crap 297 soldiers yeah many 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 soldiers and but so really the, got... the the total number is like just shy of 450 and uh and in time's note he said another thing that like uh he said you know I, I found the note here. Yeah, I have the honor to report that 29 Ashaman, 97 dedicated, and 322 soldiers are now enrolled at the Black Tower. Um, and then he said, I now have as many as 50 recruiting parties in the field at any time, with the result that three or four men are added to the rolls almost every day. That in was the most months, intimidating stat. The Black Tower will equal the white, as I said it would. In a year, Tarvalon will tremble at our numbers. Yeah. And I also like this last little the line where he says, I harvested... I harvested yeah. that blackberry bush myself. A small bush and thorny, but a surprising number of berries for the size. And I found that interesting. Yeah. And I was confused by this uh, when you know reading it younger. Um, because he calls it a small bush and thorny. Uh, for some reason, I had it in my mind that he was talking about the two rivers there. Oh. Well, oh. Because we soon see oh, really? two rivers men showing up at the Black Tower. Okay. And and we know that Taim also personally went to the two rivers. Um and and it's because he calls the the blackberry bush small. That confused me because like Tarvalon's the biggest city in Randland. I thought that would go to Camelin. No. Uh so By there's population or landmass. Oh, I guess it doesn't really matter. Population like oh, Tarvalon Tarvalon is like uh like Three quarters of a million, I think, and Camelin's like six hundred thousand. Uh, yeah. There, Robert Jordan gave a. Uh, um, it's probably in the companion. No, it was a. It was. Um, uh, it was an interview database quote um, on Theoryland, or maybe it was, maybe it was the other way around. It, it was maybe Tarvalon was six hundred thousand, and Camelin was like three hundred. Yeah, no, that's what it was because. Like, uh, Tyr, Ilion, and Kyrian are all about a quarter million. Uh, Camelin's like 300,000, and Tarvalon's like half a million or 600,000. Um, oh, crap. But yeah, so, like, 
that's not a small bush. That's a huge discrepancy there. Yeah, in, in size, I mean, not in, in uh, what... Yeah. Also, in what time you've been saying, you're right. That's not a very small bush. But with with the context of what was currently being discussed in that note, I had no problem understanding, even as a as a kid, understanding what he was talking about. I think you were looking too deep there, bud. Yeah, I don't know, but uh, <laughs> but I mean, this read it's very obvious, you know, that it was yeah. uh, that he's talking about Tarvalon. I was just yeah. confused by the fact that he called it small. Um, uh, Get, yeah. Getting back around to to Rand again, though, I'm going to wrap up my my Rand points here. Um, there's one thing else left I have to say, and it's something I never understood. I, I want you to explain this to me, Drew, because I'm sure there's a reason. I'm sure I'm just kind of overreacting here. Uh, but I'm also sure that others oh, have voiced the same concern, too, because I've seen it. But, okay, so we've got Dark Rand, or if you want to call him further darkening Rand at this point. He seems <laughs> to be rapidly losing his trust in everyone and everything around him. You know, closest friends included in some cases. But, at some point, he decides, you know what I need right now? Colindor. And you know who I should send to get it? I should just try. I mean, I could send travel to Tyr, but channeling is starting to make me nauseous. Better send Jahar fucking Narishma to go fetch it. Good boy. Mm -hmm. You know, what the hell? Yeah, okay, why not let a random bloody Ashaman, likely soon to be insane, if not already starting to go insane, just go and take the prophesied weapon of the Lord of the Morning, capable of leveling cities at a single blow. Sounds totally safe, could not possibly go wrong in any way. What do you think? I mean, I think Rand really, really wanted to trust Jahar. Rand Why? is... Because he's at a point now where he feels so isolated that whether subconsciously or consciously, he is reaching out and trying to find people he can trust. Okay. And is, there, is there not a better way to do that than to risk this kind of... Like, holy crap. I mean, sure, there there is, but... Keep in mind, Rand is insane. <laughs> I guess. He's clearly guess. not thinking Isn't things logically I can't right now. Remember, if we actually read it in this portion of, if it's in this portion of this book, but there's a one point at which Luz Theron whispers to Rand and he says something along the lines of, only the dead trust no one. And I, th I could have sworn it had something to do with Narishma in that. Oh. In that context, but I might, I might have been, either it wasn't in this scene or I was half asleep yeah, when I, I was thought, listening to it. I thought that was earlier. It, 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 it could very well have been. Because um, doesn't he show up, like, right at the end? Luce Theron, like, wasn't talking to Rand during this segment. And then it was right at the end that he returns and Rand starts and laughing Rand starts and laughing, the nobles... Yeah. 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 I don't know. I I, I seem to... I, for some reason, when I think of that, that line from Luce Theron, when he kind of surprises me and, the, like, the rest of the readers, I assume, when Luce Theron's voice of all people says, well, you have to trust somebody, I could have... For some reason, in my head, that's linked with Jahar Narishma. Maybe it's later yeah. in the series. No, so... When know. when he returns, so it's right after Narishma says, I won't fail, and then he salutes and leaves. And then, dangerous, a voice whispered in Rand's head. Oh, yeah. yes, very dangerous. Maybe too dangerous. But it might work. It might. In any event, you must kill Torval now. You must. Yeah. And then yeah. and then the noblemen come in and find Rand laughing because yeah. Luce Theron has returned. Rand, yeah. It's just, the fa just I mean... I mean Narishma and any of the Ashaman, I think it's quite a dangerous thing to do. But yeah, why and he's Narishma? aware of that. Why, uh, why so, not just go channel and get him himself? This is something that can go so wrong. This could lead to hundreds of thousands or millions of deaths if the slightest thing goes wrong. And Rand's just like, I'll tell you, I'll roll these dice. Yeah, well, when he could so easily, uh, if he wanted to deal with a little bit of nausea, could so easily have just avoided that entire danger. Keep in mind, Rand also didn't tell Narishma everything he needed to know. 
What do you mean by that? Well, 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 we'll we'll revisit this in the second half of this book. But okay, uh, at least on the surface, Rand did not tell Narishma everything he needed to know about the wards on Kalindor. Oh, that's weird. Okay, so was that intentional or not? I mean, it must have not been intentional since he wanted the sword. So it's a great question, and that's something we'll have to discuss more after we oh, get to that crap. scene later okay. on. Anyway, I'm done with my points about Rand. Okay, uh, I, I am too. Let's go to Egwene. Yep, that's the last of the character <sighs> discussion I have here. Is Egwene? I only have two points, but you know they're they're modest. They're or medium size, I should say. Um, okay. Should I just, just get us started here? Yeah, yep. I guess I'll do. Um, Egwene's chapters are a little surreal to me. I specifically, you know, chose that word, uh, surreal, at this point in the series, because she has achieved the Amarillan seat, but she really hasn't started to consolidate her power among the rebel lives of yet. And there's, uh-huh. there are still plenty of moments, I think, you know, where we can cheer for her, particularly in this last chapter, chapter 19, that we read for today's discussion. But overall, her, the entire power struggle in Salidar is just, or not in Salidar anymore, but the entire power struggle is just boring and, and, and sometimes frustrating. And I think a big part of this frustration is in the characters of Lelaine and Romanda, for me personally. Yeah. I really, really, really hate these two, Lelaine and Romanda. Not as characters. Because if I hated them as people, that would have indicated that at least they were written well. I don't think that's the case right here. I really honestly hate how Jordan has represented them. Lelaine and Romanda, for the vast majority of the scenes we get them in, do not comport themselves like we've been led to believe of Aes Sedai. They right? are very catty. Granted, most of it's in, Egu- in Egwene's presence, in private, and they're trying to beat her down in a submission. I get that, I get that. But the sheer pettiness, the temper tantrums, the arrogance, I just, I really wish that Jordan had chosen a more believable pair of rivals for Egwene to tackle. They don't feel like a threat. They feel like a, bu- a couple of bratty 12-year-olds who are given the shawl for a week and just told, here, do what you like for one week. You know, uh-huh. two thumbs way down for these two. It was it was satisfying, I'll say, to see Egwene tear them up in Chapter 19. But knowing what I do about the future of the series, Lelaine and Romanda still frustrate me. Or, or maybe Jordan is starting to frustrate me using Lelaine <laughs> and Romanda. Yeah. So, um, Egwene in, in this portion uh, is mostly okay. Although there's one glaring thing yeah, okay. that that <laughs> frustrates me. And this is like where it's, it's explicitly spelled out how Egwene is sort of misinterpreting or uh, or twisting the idea of G.E.T.O. to her own ends. And it's when right. she's talking with Swan early on, and, uh, and Swan is, like, saying that, you know, as soon as possible, she'll swear the three oaths again. And Egwene says, why? I don't condone yeah. lying, Swan. Not normally. It's just that sometimes it really is necessary. Her time with the Aiel flashed through her mind. So long as you're willing to pay for it anyway. So that right there, that is what I have a problem with Egwene's morality. The Uh ends justify the means as long as you're willing to pay the price afterward. That is what Egwene is operating on. And I cannot deal with that. I think I kind of come down on her side on that one. Really? No. No. Like, Hmm. no. 
Absolutely not. In, in her case, what she sorry, not that doesn't work overall as as a as a moral standard. I would have a problem with that as a moral standard, mm -hmm. you know, applied to just any situation. Um, but if you're applying it to one specific situation, like this one, she's oh, but she's not it applying situation. it to one specific situation. She's saying, I don't want you to swear the three O's because I want you to be able to lie in the future. Okay, yeah, so sorry about that, everybody. We just had a little uh, technical hiccup. The internet decided to just uh, go away for a few minutes on my end. Uh, but we're back up and running. So, um, uh, yeah, and we were in the middle of a heated, heated topic on Egwene's morality. <laughs> um, but, yeah, this is kind of this idea that she espouses here of, uh, you know, like, you know, she says she doesn't want swan to re-swear the three o's because she wants swan to be able to lie like and she and and right. the most hilarious part is that she's like i don't condone lying but i condone lying and like <laughs> well i think i think you're misinterpreting what she's saying she's not saying it's always okay to lie as long as the ends justify no. the means she's just saying there are it's you need to be able to lie for me because there are going to be a few specific scenarios where the ends justify the means not as a whole or as a general rule. I'm I'm sorry that like I don't buy that. Like no? I I do not buy that morality. Like, uh, but you could you could apply it to like a whole bunch of other things. Like, what if little kids start asking very very tough questions? You gotta lie to them sometimes, you know. That's not at all. No, what no, Egwene no. And but Swan again, I'm, I'm using it as an example. How it's you can't use it. She's this not is saying this is universal. This is not on the topic of white lies. Like we're talking about like political manipulation and lying for personal gain. Like this not is exclusively. Probably exclusively uh, in her case. Th this is specifically what Egwene <laughs> thinks about, because she she immediately thinks back to her time with the Aiel and how she lied for personal gain, like. <laughs> mm, I don't know. Yeah. If she had oh. Yeah. Other than this one scene, like Egwene's scenes are are actually kind of entertaining. I enjoy her her meeting with the Andorran nobles, and and I especially love the the meeting of the Hall when they declare war yes. and like, and just just how like out of sorts like flummoxed all these Aes Sedai are they're like oh my gosh what is happening like oh and then Moria gets up in the middle of it and it has this like righteous speech in uh, you know in support and mm -hmm. and Lelaine's like that's all well and good we're gonna have a chat about decorum after this you know and like <laughs> yeah yeah and then and then uh um another very interesting part about this is uh Talmanis has been hanging around and yeah yeah and Elaine, um, Elaine chats with him, and uh, I Elaine. love this scene. Elaine, sorry, Egwene, my bad. Um, <laughs> Got you. Uh, yeah, she she chats with him, and and he kind of is is straight up with her and says, "Look, uh, the band of the Red Hand isn't going to go to Tarbalon. He's like, we have a, another contract here with uh, um, Roadran? Uh King Roadrin, mm -hmm. and we're going to help him like kind of get Murindy." Uh, settled and um, and and I think this is another point like this is a very different Talmanis than the one we're going to get in a couple of books here like <laughs> so yeah. it, it's uh, it's fun getting these little scenes with him and and it's also fun getting to see him like interact with different people because most of the time with Talmanis obviously he's he's around Matt his, his interactions with our main characters are all with Matt. And then this is the only Robert Jordan penned scene where Talmanes is interacting with a different major character than Matt. And it's fun to see 
how like how the same and how different he is. He's more like business with Egwene, but he still has that same kind of dour personality that we see him with Matt, like you know, in Mayrone and and during the Battle of Kyrien and things like that. So I liked that dynamic between Egwene and Talmanes in this scene. You are a big uh, fan of Talmanes, aren't you? I'm I'm a very big fan of Talmanes. Okay, a lot of Robert things are starting to, to click into place here with how much yeah, with how much he had to complain about with Sanderson's Talmanes. I didn't realize a lot of that probably stems from the fact that you just were such a big Talmanes fanboy earlier than that. Okay, makes sense. Yeah. Makes sense. I will Drew, you're gonna want to reach out through the webcam and choke me after I say this one. I don't oh. like Jordan's Talmanes. I like Brandon's. Why? I like Brandon's because he's just. Why don't you like Jordan's Talmanes? He's too boring. He's just boring. Oh, I disagree. He's like, oh, he's like, if if a loaf of bread was a human being, it's like there's no substance to it. Oh, I so disagree. Yeah, I know. Oh, I knew you would. I knew you would. I just oh. nothing about Talmanes really until book. Well, actually, including book twelve, he still didn't <laughs> make me laugh in book twelve. But thirteen and fourteen, he had a few shining moments, particularly in the prologue of A Memory of Light. I actually really, really like. Talmanis. Yeah, that was a good scene with Talmanes and yeah. uh, by Grace and Banners Fallen. Yeah. Um, but I, I have one more character I want to talk about before okay. we move on to uh, like a lore, cool. you know, lore segment here, and that is Varen. Okay. That is very much Varen. Uh, she she just has this prologue scene. Yeah. But oh my gosh, is this a bombshell? <laughs> we see her navigating the the currents of. Uh, the wise ones oh, and the maidens Christ. and the tower I said I and the fact that she has now sworn fealty to Rand and she has to deal with it the fallout of that again. where she has it's lost the trust of other I said I because they're like how could you like, you're no. back oh sorry sorry you were frozen there for like 15 seconds I thought it happened again oh jeez did I not freeze at all uh no oh I, 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 I was saying Drew Drew so I must have frozen because you didn't hear me oh okay oh. Woo! Sorry, go. I didn't mean to interrupt you. I just thought we had to cancel and start again. Ah, uh, well, uh, yeah. I I love how she has to be so delicate in this scene to get what she wants out of everybody around her, out of the wise ones, out of the maidens, out of the tower I said I, and how she's you know utilizing this compulsion weave. And we don't even really see like this is this is some really majestic writing on Robert Jordan's part where he gives us so much detail in the scene without really giving us any detail. We don't know what Varen's after, even though we get in her head so deeply. Like, it's masterfully done. Hmm. Yeah. So. Varen uh, is yeah. Uh, that said, do you have any other character notes before nope. we go into lore? Nope. And, as far, and when we go into lore, really, I've only got one thing to say. Well, I've got one question and then one thing to say. Actually, okay. one idea to put forth. Um, should I actually start us to get me out of the way here? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, my question for you, Drew, um, seriously though, okay, what is happening with the power and the way it's acting strange after the Bowl of Winds was used? I think we so, see it with both Sidene and Sidar. We do. Uh, okay. So just to make it very clear, um, the weirdness with the power is because of the Bowl of the Winds, not because of Elaine's gateway. The fact that it's affecting Sidene makes that clear. Yeah. What is happening here... Okay is that the Bowl of the Winds was pushed way, way, way beyond anything it was supposed to do. Okay. And and so it became question. unstable, and there are these, like, tufts of 
sighting and Sayadar that were like I mean there were huge weaves that it sent out of course but there were tufts of it like breaking off of these weaves because it was so unstable and so pushed way beyond okay. its, its supposed max and so the one power is now resonating with and against those tufts of sighting and Sayadar right. floating around and okay. obviously it's it's worst where the bowl was used, where right. most of the power came right. you know, came down directly. And the fact that Elaine's, you know, nuclear bomb of a gateway went off, you know, roughly in the same area of the world is probably what's giving um, rise to a lot of that confusion, eh? Yes. Yeah. Okay. But that that is a coincidence. Okay. And I was going to actually mention earlier, I totally forgot to, about how the Bowl of the Winds just is such an interesting, probably the coolest Tirangriel I think we see, in, in my opinion, in this entire series. I mean, yes, the huh. the Shoidin Cal and Kalindor and Sakarnin and all these other ones, they're, they're awesome, but these are Sa'angriel and there's obviously Tirangriel that grant access to them. But a single Tirangriel, oh, actually, no. I, no, never mind. The Crystal Columns in. Roydion. Those will probably say, take the cake. Yeah, never mind. I realized what I was doing other there. pretty cool ones. But just the, the sheer, I was going to say, the sheer immensity of the power of this thing, but I guess if it was pushed so far beyond its limit, that would explain a lot of this, what's going on there. I like your explanation of there. I, I totally accept it. I assume, of course, you've done your research, though, and you know what you're talking about, so I have to accept yes. it. Yes. Um, yeah, no, that, that is that is word from Robert Jordan. That's awesome. just That's not just my theory. Okay. Um, yeah. And to wrap up my miscellaneous slash questions, I have an idea to put forth, Drew. I, I purposefully did not say this during our housekeeping before we started rolling because I wanted to get your, your reaction oh. to this idea live on air. I'm also starting to wonder if we actually said this before way earlier in the podcast. I'm not, or like in the episodes, I'm not sure. But how about this? This is an idea I had. This is an idea I had actually during the Fires of Heaven, I think. It was that long ago, but I forgot to mention until now. It was a scene with Elaine that inspired me towards this. Um, and I, I might have some homework for us if you're down for it. Doesn't need to be finished okay. anytime soon. But somewhere during Elaine's fascination with Matt's language, been uh, Crown of Swords actually. It doesn't matter. Um, I thought to myself, how funny would it be if we set ourselves to coming up with new Wheel of Time style curses or curse phrases? <laughs> I thought it Wheel was a of pretty... Time style like. Yeah, like I'm pretty stoked for it. Like I, I've already got some down written down. I'm still refining a couple. Um, but maybe sometime in the future, before we end our Wheel of Time read, we should bring these to the table, I'm thinking, because as, as amazing or embarrassing, and or both, as they may be, I still think it sounds amusing. So does that sound like something you'd want to do? Uh, I guess. <laughs> all right, all right. We'll, we'll, we'll put it down for a tentative yes. Okay. Sorry, and I'm done my uh, miscellaneous and my questions out of here, so continue with our lore, my dude. All right. So I really only have one thing to talk about today, but it's going to be a little hefty. Okay. And what I'm going to do to kick this off is we're going to talk about the timeline of events in Ebudar. At the end okay. of the Crown of Swords, mm -hmm. Matt and Birgitta and the Wonder Girls are all meeting with the Sea Folk, arguing over what's going to happen after they get the Bowl of the Winds. That scene happens the same day as the opening events of this book. It is noted in A Crown of Swords, in that scene, that it is just past noon. And... I know where this is going now. They make, they make their agreement, and Matt goes off to find Oliver, because he ran off. And when Matt goes off, he says to his red arms. He's like, all right, we're going to go out and make circuits and we're going to meet back up at the Mulhalla 
Mul Mulhara. Oh my gosh, I just totally <laughs> blanked on what the you're, name of the you're freedom plaza is. The plaza in front of it. Mulhala. Mulhala. I made you do it again. I can't, I can't, like, uh, yeah. M Malhara, right? Malhara. It's the Malhara. The Malhara, that's how I pronounce it. The plaza in front of the Terrazin Palace. Anyway, he says we're going to meet back up here in an hour if we can't find him. And Mac goes off, and he does not come back to the plaza, implying there's less than an hour there. Okay. Right? And the Shanshan attack. Now, assuming, and which is what we're given to, to believe here, oh. Matt leaves that meeting and goes off looking for Oliver, and the rest of them immediately go and head to the plaza and make the gateway to go to the farm. How do they have time to... Sorry, go... I don't mean... Yeah. Now, <laughs> uh, they do that, and the ride is supposed to be about two hours to the farm after they get out of the gateway. Rianne Corley says that. But over the course of the ride, there are some weird things where Egg, or Elaine notes she's like, the sun is in a weird spot. It seems like it should be lower. Like, and and Rianne, uh, Rianne is like, wow, that seems like that took us... Way I less than two hours. Well, she said yeah. a, a bit shy, like she was little, like she overestimated yeah. the journey. But I didn't mm -hmm. think it was by that much. I don't remember mm -hmm. Elaine noting anything. And then about they the have time to sun. get to the farm. Huh. Vandine and Adelius interrogate Ispen. Avienda and Elaine go through the Tarangrail and stuff. Then they use the bowl of the winds, and then they sense the channeling from Ebudar. Hmm. And the lightning, they see the lightning on the horizon. Now, remember back in book five? Yes, I knew we were going here. <laughs> Damn it. No, when I don't accept it. Go ahead. I raised the theory that Avienda might be able to make a gateway that can time travel. There are some major weirdness, weird things going on in this sequence of events that could be explained away by Avienda having a gateway that time travels. Okay. Um, and I and once again, there there is an answer to this. And there are also things, like Avienda, when she makes her gateway, she specifically notes how she has to use all of her power to make a gateway that is smaller than the one Elaine can make with yeah, much less than all of Elaine's power. But it power. doesn't mean it's any more than a gateway, because look at Andral. I mean, he uses way different amounts of the power for way different size gateways and as well. And he has a talent. Right. Okay. He should not be able to make a gateway. He does not. He's not strong enough in the power to form a gateway. Yeah. That's what but he has is. a talent, so he can do it. But I mean, it's just I. Th I really think you're reaching here, man. Like I. I do understand. I do get that there is a huge discrepancy in the amount of time that Matt said he was going to take looking for Oliver. Oliver? Oliver, Jesus. And the fact that the sun is in different points in the well, sky I, than I it should see, be. I see that as Jordan setting up what's about to happen, reminding you, yes, the world is in a drought, there's something wrong with the world, the sun has been killing people, has been killing this world, and now the sun is, is, is you know, about to be. I think he was just setting that scene for the, you know, for the reader to know, okay, this is going to happen now. We are finally what, taking what care of this What would the sun problem. being in the wrong part of the sky have anything oh, no, to do with No, you said strangeness with, with, with the sun. Like, the sun may be too bright. I mean, obviously... No, if it's, it's... it's nothing about what the sun looks like. It's all about the sun's position in the sky. Okay. That's all that's mentioned, is the sun's position in the sky, being lower than it should be. But they didn't use a gateway to leave Ebudar. 
Yeah, they did. Aviendo wove a gateway from the plaza from the Terrazin Palace north to the hills south of the farm. So how, how and when did they see the golem? the gateway. Watching them from the spire. What? How, how and when did they see the golem watching them from the spire? The golem was watching her weave the gateway. She was holding the I gateway open all, while okay. everybody was okay. filing through. So and they then did she that. looked up. And then when, when everybody was okay. through, she unwove the gateway so there wouldn't be any residue. Oh, so they wove that gateway from the Mahar Hammond uh, Square, right? It's from the courtyard of the Terrazin Palace. Yeah, yeah. I thought that, okay. Yeah. Okay. Still, so, though, I just, I, there's now, so much. Now, so... I will tell you right now, there is an answer to this. I know, you've been saying that. And, and, uh,. I'm going to hold that off until maybe Towers of Midnight, just because I know Pat wants to talk about Towers of Midnight and some time wonkiness there, too. Um, I but, think but yeah, there is there is an answer to this. I think a lot of those points could be explained with Jordan's use of the unreliable narrator, though. I mean, if Matt didn't find Oliver, like, maybe he didn't go back to the palace. I mean, I assume that he would have after that hour is done. And you're, you're, you're absolutely right in, in, in pointing out that discrepancy. Matt said, we'll be back here, we'll meet here in an hour, and the fact that he hadn't yet returned by the end of A Crown of Swords means that there was probably less than an hour between the time that they departed in search of Oliver and the Shan Shan attacked. I agree with that. And also how it's really, really weird how they managed to do a two-hour journey, or something like it. And... and and use, interrogate a prisoner, interrogate, and, and use check the out the Turangreal, and use the Bowl of the Winds. In the time it took the Shan Shan to attack there. I, I yeah. get that. And we have seen temporal disturbances. Oh, actually, I'm not going to spoil the future of the series here. Maybe we should censor that out. I don't know. Um, but uh, it's not the only time that Jordan plays with time, I guess. And he is a renowned physicist in his own right. But I just I, I think in this case, a lot of what you're, you're basing your assumptions on could be also explained by an unreliable narrator. So I want to clear something up here. I am not making any assumptions here. This is the popular fan theory. This is not my theory. I am relaying I have never heard this theory until you brought it up in Fires of Heaven Part 2, I think it was. I had never even heard it. Anybody who's listening can go back and listen to my reaction when you brought up time traveling (laughs) gateways. I was like, wait, wait, what? I I was flabbergasted by that. Yeah. This is not something I came up with. This is something that was discussed on, like, the Theoryland boards and Dragon Mount and... Wouldn't and somebody like, have pinned Robert Jordan down on a definitive... Oh, wait, you said that there is an answer. Uh, Sorry. You said somebody, there is an answer. Somebody actually asked Robert Jordan about this specific scene, and he smiled and said, Rafa. I think he smiled and went, oh, cr-, in, his, in his own head, he went, oh, crap, I gotta fix something here. <laughs> it's just me being... Pessimistic, I suppose. But I, I, I knew this would, you know, uh, be a little more, uh, a little more involved of a lore thing, cool. because this is such a crazy out there theory. <laughs> but, and and I wanted to bring this theory because it's a lot of fun. Like it's fun to debate. I mean, there there, <gasps> there got, are, uh, whoa, what? I just got an epic idea. How about some point in the future we come and bring forth our most re- the most ridiculous theories that we've heard touted about the Wheel of Time. That would be cool, right? I just wanted to get that out of the way before I totally forgot it. Sorry, I didn't well, mean to interrupt I, you. I immediately know what the most ridiculous one I've ever heard same was. Same here, same here. Because it was so dumb and so wrong. It yeah. was like the guy who came up with it just completely read the books wrong. Uh, completely missed, like, the entire ending of two of the first three books. <laughs> wow. But, uh, but yeah, so, so that's... Uh, 
that's something if people want to hop on our post on Facebook and discuss away, I I'll throw a little more a uh, little more oil onto that fire. <laughs> okay. Uh, I I'd, I'd like to hear what people think about that and and dig into that a little more. Yeah. Um, cool. Yeah, but. So beyond that, do you have any kind of concluding thoughts for this portion of Path of no, Daggers? No, I probably probably will at the end of the Path of Daggers, but for now, I'm just sitting here gearing up for the final draft, my man. Okay. All right, let's 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 dive into the final draft then. Okay. All right, I'll get us started then. So for my final draft entry for today, it, it, I mean, it's different from any other entry I've had before. What makes it different is that each time before, I have been in the supermarket on a Sunday, right before we record the podcast and I'm, I'm looking for an appropriate beer for that day's episode I'm usually keeping in mind what I've just read I'm looking at phrases I'm looking at words subject matter and I'm reading through the names of all the brews to find an interesting or amusing connection that I can make this beer however caught my eye in the local liquor store about six months ago before we had even started the wheel of time read through um, I read the name of this beer like we had already started the podcast but we hadn't reached the wheel of time yet so I read the name of this beer and I thought ah, that's a good one I'm gonna I, I need to bring that one on for Path of Daggers okay so I wrote it down and six months later here I have it this All here right. is a Belgian styled wheat beer which describes itself as a and I quote thirst quenching light bodied farmhouse ale with complex earthy and citrus notes I didn't get the earthy but I definitely you know since we're drinking a beer no surprise I got the citrus definitely okay uh orange zest uh orange zest uh says hops i think i'm pronouncing that correctly says s-a-a-z saz hops is it saz hops okay saz hops apparently a bit of spice I, i'm gonna guess it's t- actually all spice um uh, listed on the can usually usually those uh like belgian styles will have like coriander or something like that in them mm, interesting um, and I'm, I'll show you the, the the can right now my man this here is a brew from black oak brewing company and keeping in mind what's happened as right as we started our, our read-through on this book with Elaine and Nynaeve and all of our mutual parties with the Athan Mier and we have the kinswomen getting the chance to use the bowl of the winds and finally reverse this endless summer drought that the Dark One has imprisoned the world in. This one is called Beat the Heat. That is fantastic. Right? I thought it was pretty good. I saw that and I was like, <laughs> bowl of the winds. Got her. That is really good. Thank you. Thank you very much. Nice. Nice. What are you bringing? So today, I'm doing something a little different. Um, this is a first for the podcast, well. in fact. So uh, my beer is not specifically themed for the Path of Daggers, but it is themed for the Wheel of Time. Okay. More importantly, uh, this beer was sent to me by a listener of Inking Out Loud. What? Oh. And I... Really? I want to give him a shout out. Give uh, him that he shout is, out. He is one of our newest Patreon supporters, no, Sean Harriet. Sean Harriet. Thank you so much for sending me this beer. Awesome. I'll tell you, it, it was very tasty. So, this is a stout from Polly's Island Brewing Company. And uh, I think this is, yeah, North Charleston, South Carolina. So, really? Right near Robert Jordan. Yep, yep. I recognize that. Um, this is. Uh, very bitter, roasty kind of stout. Um, right. Not not super like, not a whole ton of chocolate. A little bit of caramel in the finish, but but mostly like a really, really bitter, roasty uh, stout. It is seven point two percent, so not like crazy heavy either. But this is called 
gray man. Oh, come on. Are you kidding me? Really? That's yep. cool. I like that. Sean yep. Harriet. Yeah. Thank so you once so again, much, Sean. Yeah, thank you, Sean. And welcome. That, that was something I was very excited to have. And so to any of our listeners, if you if you have like a crazy local beer that, you know, doesn't get distributed or something and uh, and you think it'll be great for a, a book that, you know, we might cover in the future or a, a Wheel of Time book, since you know we'll be covering those, uh, feel free to reach out to me. Um, I'll, I'll make a little beer swap with you. Yeah. Can't, can't do it with me because I'm across the border. I'm international, yo. Yeah, well. <laughs> but uh, with, I bet you Drew would be on that. That sounds awesome. Yeah. Yeah. I sent, uh, I sent Sean a, a couple of examples of fine Colorado craft beer that oh, you yeah? can't really get outside of the, uh, the brewery. So uh, this was a, a great little swap that I think uh, worked out nicely. Sweet. Yeah. So that said, this has been episode 49 of yes. the Inking Out Loud podcast. And next up, we are going to be doing something a little different and a little special for our 50th episode. Yeah. Uh, we're, we're planning on doing a live stream, and we're going to do a little discussion about how the year, how 2019 went, some of our favorites and least favorites of this year, and, uh, and maybe a couple of other little games. So keep an eye out on our Facebook page for more details about that in the coming week. And uh, in the meantime, check us out on Patreon, like that awesome guy, Sean, uh, patreon.com slash inkingoutloud. You can get uh, access to our monthly newsletter, early access to episodes, access to some of our short episodes covering like novellas and short stories and miscellaneous topics like the Wheel of Time TV show. Yeah. Um, yeah. And uh, as always, thank you for joining us. I am your host, Drew McCaffrey. And I'm Rob Santos, everyone. And we'll catch you next time. Bye-bye.